All right, instead of reading a psalm today, which I always start out with the psalms, today I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, just to kind of give us an introduction into the Christmas story. And um, I'm not going to give a lot of commentary, but I am going to tell you a couple points which you can find out from Luke chapter 1, which is detailed in a sermon I did last year concerning the Feast of the Lord, which is specifically uh, Yom Teruah, or the Day of Trumpets. But uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll read Luke 1, and then we'll have some announcements, and uh, then we'll get started into the rest of today's service. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abia. Abia is uh, listed, I believe, in... Um, 1 Chronicles 24.10, and that's an important name to remember because by knowing the name Abia and how it's lined up with the uh, priestly divisions, you can tell when Jesus was born. And Jesus was not born on December 25th. You go from Abia, which is the eighth tribe, the beginning of the year started in the month of Abib, which later changed the name to Nisan in the Bible. That's in the uh, May, April, I'm sorry, uh, March, April time frame. And so you go eight tribes forward. There's two tribe or eight uh, divisions forward. There's two divisions each month. In other words, they're in Jerusalem serving the Lord from their division for 15 days. And so you have a two-week period, a two-week period, a two-week period. You go forward eight weeks, and that takes you to the time when he was given the notification that he would have a son. This is the father of John the Baptist. And then we'll go on from there and we'll talk about when Jesus was born uh, based on a couple more things that are said in Luke chapter 1. Um, Abia, that was, um, uh, where was I anyway? Verse 5, and he says, um, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, meaning she was also of the priestly tribe, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, just as Sarah was barren, just as uh, uh, Hannah, the mother of uh, Samuel, the final judge of Israel, was barren. And then the wife of Manoah, who was the uh, father of um, Samson, was barren. The Lord uses these people in their time of uh, affliction in order to glorify himself. And the same is the case with um, uh, the wife of Zacharias, who is Elizabeth. Um, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, as it says, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And uh, we read in the book of uh, Proverbs that uh, uh, when you cast a lot, uh, the Lord determines its outcome. Now, that's a way, way misquote of that, but that's what it basically is telling us, is that the Lord is in charge of lots. And that doesn't mean we're to throw lots today. Since the giving of the Holy Spirit, lots isn't something that we should be doing. But anyway, um, the lot fell to uh, burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. Well, of course, nobody's allowed in that area except one person when he's uh, administering uh, the incense before the Lord. And incense, so you know, is a 
picture in the Bible. It's explained explicitly in the book of Revelation. It's a picture of prayers ascending to God. And so we're going to see the prayers of Zacharias answered. Um, uh, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. There you go. Um, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, which goes back to Numbers, I believe it's chapter 6, uh, the Nazarite vow. Somebody that is a Nazarite is set apart to God um, during the time of their vow, and several people were Nazarites from birth. Samuel was one of them. Uh, Samson was one of them. John the Baptist is a Nazarite from birth. Um, it says, um, uh, where was I, 13? The angel said to him, do not fear, uh, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, prophesied in uh, Malachi chapter 4, Elijah's coming. Um, he is in the power and spirit of Elijah. It doesn't ever say that he is Elijah. It's that he's in the power and spirit of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, Shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the fact that he's mute and he can't speak until this happens gives us an indication of how much um, alacrity he would have uh, uh, used in getting things started. Um, I won't get any further than that right now, but I explain all this in the, uh, the previous sermons. But it says... Um, uh, behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now we have another clue. Now in the sixth month, uh, the angel, uh, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee and Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But she, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. 
Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leapt in her womb. I'll stop right there and I'll say so much for abortion. Okay, the baby knew his Lord from the womb and he knew his Lord when the Lord in the womb was less than a week old, less than a week old. I don't care what term abortion you want. It is an it is abomination before God. These are God's children conceived. I don't care what the reason they were conceived for. One sin does not cover another sin. And this is proven right here, much less in the Old Testament, where it says explicitly that a child in the womb has the same rights as a child outside of the womb. So just wanted to interject that right there. It said um, uh, baby leapt uh, in the, her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things from which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Three months, obviously it was six months, plus the three is nine months, so that was after uh, Mary had her child. Now Elizabeth full-time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he should be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father. What would he have him called? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercies promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by remission of their sins throughout the tender, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, we go from the tribe of uh, Abia, where Zacharias is uh, ministering in the temple, forward the six months to when Mary was given her note. Then she went down, the three months were completed, John the Baptist was born, and then we go from there another six months forward and we find that Jesus would have been born on Yom Teruah, which is the Feast of the Lord. It's the Day of Trumpets, which today is called Rosh Hashanah, or the Head of the Year. It's in the September-October time frame. There's no doubt about it. The Bible is very explicit on this. However, if you go into your littletimeanddate.com computer and you backdate the 266 to 270 days for human gestation, from that day, it takes you to December 25th. And four times in the past 150 years, the Feast of Lights, which is um, the Feast of Dedication noted in the book of John, um, that is, has fallen on the same day as Christmas Day. And so we can have with all assurance that Jesus Christ was conceived right at this time and probably on the Feast of Lights. He is the light of the world after all. So a little squiggle for your brain there. Today we are celebrating a wonderful thing which occurred really in human history. And uh, as I said, we'll talk about that a little more in the, uh, the moments to come, but I'm not uh, going to specifically do a New Testament reading today because that will be our New Testament reading and it was long and it's a little cold out here. If anybody gets tired or needs to go, I understand, but uh, uh, this will be our Christmas sermon. Before we get into it though, I have a couple of announcements. I still have not heard from Paul and Elaine who are missionaries over in Japan. Um, I'm expecting them to be back any day now and uh, I'm sure they're already done with their travel ch through China and uh, they're probably up north with their family right now, and they should be back in Sarasota real soon. But once again, until I actually see his face here, I'd like each person to remember Paul and Elaine in prayer because they have served the Lord well in Japan. And um, I, uh, once again, have looked at a building for us to buy, and um, uh, that may be coming very soon. Uh, I thought that they were gonna cut down all of the trees, and they were merciful, and they didn't cut them all down, but uh, it is a little bit of a, a, a difference without the uh, shade over us here. And it's, it's going to be a very hot summer if we don't find a building. So uh, we may have something coming in that area. And um, I have something special that I'd like to do today. Um, I don't normally uh, do anything like this, and I don't want to favor one person above another. But I would like Kelly Carlin to come right over here, if she would. Um, uh, I, I mentioned Kelly time and time again, so people all over the world that watch this on Facebook uh, uh, hear her name, uh, and I pick on her week after week, but today I'm going to pick on her in front of the camera so people uh, that do watch this on YouTube uh, can see what she looks like. Kelly Carlin has um, been the most faithful attendee of Church on the Beach over the past year and a half. She has missed one sermon, and that was because her daughter was in the... Uh, uh, parade for um, Veterans Day a couple, uh, about a month ago, and uh, she wanted to uh, support her daughter as she did that. But she has faithfully been to every single sermon. She's put up with my boring sermons out of Genesis. We've done 54 sermons out of Genesis, and we're still in Genesis chapter 25 starting next week. So she's put up with a great deal, and uh, she's uh, seen the Lord's word through my incompetence. And so I wanted to thank her, and I wanted to give her a, a, a token of my appreciation oh. for her faithfulness. And it is a copy of the New King James Version of the Bible. And uh, that's for you, and I want to read you something before you leave. Okay. 
all right? And what I'm going to have to do here is uh, I never do this. I always print my things on really large font so I can see what I'm looking at. But uh, this is, I, I wanted to get this all onto one piece of paper, so I've got to wear glasses. Here we go. Kelly Carlin, you have been the most faithful attendee of Church on the Beach since its inception, and if especially this year. You have missed just one sermon. It was for a noble cause of being with your precious Sarah as she marched in the Veterans Day parade with her academy. And yes, you stayed up late with popcorn and soda, I'm sure, to watch it on YouTube. Your your faithfulness to this ministry has touched my heart, and I thank you for it. Thank you for those you've invited and for those you've brought and shared with us from time to time. And uh, I commend this Bible to you for your care, for your reading each day and every day of your life. Although you probably know this by heart because you've heard me say it a million times, if you read your Bible 30 minutes a day, you can complete it in 154 days. Thus, in one year, you can explore its riches two full times. May you be faithful to do so and even more. With love and thanks from all at Church on the Beach and with my special appreciation, I present to you this Bible, the precious Word of God. And then I quoted this uh, at a sermon that you were at at Grace Baptist once, and I want to read it to you. The Bible contains the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good the design, and the glory of God its end. It should, be, it should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life. It will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Amen. Amen. Come here, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. All right. And I see we have Cindy Eason just showed up, girl I went to high school with, just uh, popped in. And she uh, lives quite a long way away from here, so I'm, I'm thankful she made it. Uh, I have another friend from high school that's visiting from Texas today, and uh Uh, He's never been to the church on the beach because every time he's come, there's either been rain or there's been some cataclysm. So uh, uh, this is actually his first time to be here, even though he's been here when I've had services in the past. Um, Anyway, as I said, I'm not going to do a New Testament reading because we did a New Testament reading here. So we'll get straight into things. Today's sermon is based on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and it's called the Christmas story. All right. But before we get into the sermon, as I do every week, my favorite thing before the sermon is to give you this day in history. And today is obviously December 23rd. And on this day in history in 1783, George Washington returned home to Mount Vernon after the disbanding of his army following the Revolutionary War. And if you've ever read some of the quotes about this man and what he did, he took and laid aside his sword and he went back to Virginia to just be a farmer and uh, he was called by this nation to become its first president. But there were people that actually wanted to make him king here in America. And he turned that honor down. He said, I'll have no such part of that. We just got rid of that. And so uh, I just want to read you one quick quote about George Washington that was written by a man named James Roche. His work well done, the leader stepped aside, spurning a crown with more than kingly pride. 
content to wear the higher crown of worth while time endures, first citizen of earth. Well, we know that the true first citizen of earth is Jesus Christ, but in our nation we do uh, have uh, fond memories of George Washington, and so uh, we're remembering what he did on this day in 1783. And then in 1788, Maryland voted to cede, C-E-D-E, a hundred uh, square mile area for the seat of national government. About two thirds of the area became the District of Columbia, which is Washington, D.C. And so uh, another parallel with Washington there. Then in 1823, the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement C. Moore, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," was published. And uh, 1888, following a quarrel with Paul Gauguin, I had to laugh when I typed this one, uh, Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh cut off a portion of his earlobe. And, uh, you know, you talk about getting mad at somebody and spite cutting your own ear off. It's kind of crazy, but he was a crazy guy and he was a master of painting. So uh, a lot of people that are bordering on insane are actually really people that uh, uh, have done great human achievement, such as Martin Luther. You know, he was almost crazy, but he was one of the greatest theologians and uh, the father of the uh, Reformation. And of course, Albert Einstein wasn't allowed to cross the road because he'd forget to look both ways. And yet he came up with the theory of relativity. So um, Paul Gauguin uh, demonstrated his craziness, both in uh, art and in cutting off his ear on this day in 1888. And then in 1942, of course, of course uh, Bob Hope agreed to entertain United States Airmen in Alaska, and it was the first of the traditional Christmas shows. And uh, what a great thing he did for our uh, service members over the years. And uh, I'm so thankful for people like Bob Hope that have gone overseas. And I know I spent nine long years over there, and uh, uh, I never saw any of the Christmas shows. But uh, there were times where it was kind of lonely, even with uh, my wife with me. And uh, I was in a very remote assignment for a couple years. And uh, uh, I just think of the people that were in even more remote assignments that uh, Bob Hope went to see. So uh, there you go. All right. So as I said, today is Isaiah 7, 14, and this is called the Christmas story. And so I'll read our sermon text. It's, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, as you've seen, I already showed you this in the uh, uh, New Testament reading. Jesus was actually born in the fall not in December. But I wanted you all to be aware of the actual Christmas story as well as the one that we're celebrating today. Today, we celebrate the moment when the infinite united with the finite. And what I want to do today is take you on a trip through the Bible, which points to the birth of Christ so you can see how God has orchestrated history and these Bible stories to lead us directly to his own son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so our text verse for today comes from Isaiah chapter 9. It's verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it, with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God has done the incomprehensible. He is the creator of the universe and thus time itself. And yet he stepped into the creation and united with humanity in the womb of a virgin. This is the incarnate Christ. This is the Christmas story. This is Jesus. 
And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Heavenly Father, here we are in your glorious presence and I do ask that you bless this service. I ask that you uh, uh, help us to understand the marvelous mystery of what you have accomplished in human history for fallen man. May you be glorified through this and uh, may my words be pleasing to you and may the hearts here be tender and uh, accepting of what you have, you have laid before us in your word. All glory to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our first thought today is the coming one. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you an overview of the promise of the coming Messiah. And by doing this, I hope that you will understand why Jesus came and some of the details about whom he would be. If we can see these things, then we can be confident in our hope, which rests in this Christmas story. Right at the beginning, and I mean right at the beginning, man exer exercised the free will that God gave him, and he believed the lies of the devil. He did that which God forbid him to do. And when he did, it put up a wall between us and God. But it also did something for us. It gave us the knowledge of good and evil. What Adam and Eve lost was paradise, but it was paradise that they could not appreciate until they lost it. They entered the world of the devil, of sin, and of death. And man has been stuck here ever since. But God promised right there at the very beginning that he would send one who would destroy the work of the devil. In Genesis 3.15, we see the very first hint of this promised one. It says there, I will put, this is the Lord speaking to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Your seed to the devil is fallen man. He now has title and authority over fallen man. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised that the seed of the woman would be the one who would destroy the devil's work. This is all also the very first hint of the incarnation. Throughout the Bible, it is always the man who is highlighted and the promises are made to him and to his seed. This one verse, however, speaks not of the seed of the man, but of the seed of the woman. The most wonderful event that will ever occur occurred 4,000 years later. It is the Christmas story and it is hinted at right here in Genesis 3.15. God has promised, and this is the Proto-Evangelium. It's known as the first gospel, the first hint of this coming one. The Bible is going to continue to hint at him, too. And again and again, it is going to narrow the picture to such an extent that only one person can fulfill this role. And as you've seen in the past, uh, if you've been here for any of these past 54 sermons, you've seen how God has narrowed this funnel, leading down one time after another to lead us to Jesus Christ. From the first hint of the Messiah, he's worked all the way from... Adam, through his son Seth, and then a list of ten descendants, which arrives at Noah. And then after Noah, it branches off again into his second son, who is Shem. And then it follows another ten generations down to a man named Terah, whose son is Abraham. Abraham came, and to him was given the first explicit promise since Genesis 3. Not only would he have a son, but it would be through his barren wife, Sarah. As I said, that's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Abraham was told that this son would be the son of promise and that through him would come the fulfillment of the promise of the messianic blessing. This son is Isaac. From Isaac, the promise is given to his youngest son, Jacob. We'll see that in about two more sermons. We'll get to that, I think, uh, the second week of January, maybe the third week of January. 
and then from Jacob, his name is converted to Israel. Israel then has 12 sons of his own, and the promise continues to refine down to the fourth son, who is the son of Judah. And from Judah, the promised one is prophesied to come. And we read this in Genesis chapter 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter refers to the ruler, the lawgiver refers to the judge, and Shiloh is given to indicate the messianic blessing of these offices. Shiloh means tranquility. The coming ruler and judge will be one who grants peace, just as Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. From the whole nation of Israel, the line, as I said, it naturally narrows in the coming books of the Bible, and it leads us directly to this fourth son of Israel, the clan of Judah. Eventually, the majority of all of the Bible stories are going to revolve around this one tribe. And from Judah came the great King David, and it is to him that the promises continue on. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It is to the house of David that God speaks the words which will confirm the promise that was given to Eve all the way back in chapter three when he promised that the seed of the woman would destroy the works of the devil. The specific verse where this occurs and was spoken about Eve to the devil, it was prophesied in Isaiah 7:14, which was our sermon text for today. The familiar words were given to King Ahaz and it came at a time when the armies of Syria and the armies of northern Israel had come against the southern kingdom of Judah. And when they did, God promised that the invaders would be defeated. And so that they understood that it would come about exactly as he prophesied, he gave these words to King Ahaz through Isaiah. It says, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord told Ahaz to ask for a sign. But when he refused to do so, the Lord turned his words back, not just on Ahaz, but to the entire house of David. It goes from the singular in Hebrew to the plural. This means that all of the people of Judah are being told this. The Lord is going to give a sign and it's not going to be just for victory over the immediate enemies that are coming, but it will be a sign of the coming promised one. The virgin will conceive. It will be the seed of the woman, but not of the man. The seed of the woman is defined and it's redefined right in this verse. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This child has no earthly father, but his father will be God himself. Thus his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew assures us in his gospel that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. He uses the exact phrase and he uses the exact verse and he tells us there's no doubt who he is speaking about. And that leads us to our second thought today, which is the incarnation. Isaiah tells us that a virgin is going to bear a child, but we know that this is not how things work. Humans are not asexual when it comes to procreation. 
A woman who has never been with a man will never conceive a child. But the Bible says that this is exactly what will happen. And so there absolutely must be a father. If she's a virgin, then no man is the father of the child. And we also know from the first page of the Bible that things reproduce after their own kind. And we cannot miss this. If we miss this point from Genesis chapter 1, we err in the rest of our theology and everything we think about in the nature of God and who Jesus Christ is. We do not have bickens, for example, because bears do not match up with chickens. They eat chickens. And we don't have cheetahs because cheetahs don't match up with dogs. Cheetahs chase dogs and they also eat dogs as well. This isn't rocket science, but rather it is the way that things work. Right from the beginning of the creation, that pattern was given to us to help us understand what God was going to do. And so this leads us to the only obvious conclusion. Conception is going to occur apart from sex and it will be a son born to a woman. But this child will be unusual in more ways than just one. It will be just more than how he's conceived, in other words. His very origins will be eternal. Now, we learn this from the book of Micah, or Micah, chapter 5. In the second verse there, here's what it says. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. The one who is coming to rule in Judah will be born in Bethlehem. And it says that his goings forth, or the place from which he comes, is from everlasting or from eternity. The word in Hebrew is olam. But we need to consider this. There is only one who comes from eternity. Other beings are eternal in their nature, such as angels, but they are eternal from creation. They are not eternal from eternity itself. There is a difference. Angels, in other words, are created and then they're known as ev-eternal. They go on forever. Only God is eternal in his being apart from creation. The obvious question then is, how can an eternal being, which is clearly prophesied in the book of Mika, how can an eternal being be born? And the answer is what we call the incarnation. This is the Christmas story. Of all of the things that we can contemplate about the person of Jesus Christ, this is the one that is the most difficult for us to grasp and it is the one that runs into heresy most often. God united with man in the womb of a virgin. Because of this, this child is fully human. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Things were reproduced after their own kind. His mother is fully human, and yet he is fully God because his father is God. Jesus Christ is the God-man. Now, to help you get this right, and if you want to really understand this clearly, go back and watch my Genesis 1-1 sermon where I talk about the nature of God, which we do not need the Bible to understand. I clearly lay it out. There are 12 first principles which are undeniable or they're reducible to the undeniable. And what they do is they show us without any doubt the nature of God without the Bible. The thing that we need for the Bible is what's called specific revelation, how to be saved and how to be reconciled to this God that we can know apart from the Bible itself. All right, but just to help you get this right and to understand the nature of Jesus Christ, when you ask a question about him, you must always come up with two answers. All right, the first, could Jesus weep? 
as God? No. God is impassionate as man? Yes. We know that he wept at the tomb of uh, Lazarus, for example. Could Jesus learn as God? No. God is omniscient. He knows all things. As a man, yes. In the book of Luke, it says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Could Jesus suffer? As God, no. God is impassable. As a man, the answer is yes. We know that he suffered. Could Jesus die? As God, no. God is eternal. But his human nature did die. It died right on the cross of Calvary. Could Jesus sin? As God, no. God is impeccable. But here's a question. Could Jesus the human sin? I got to tell you what, there is a big debate about that one. Some people say that his impeccability actually transferred to his humanity, so it was impossible for him to sin. Some people say that's not true because then it would be an unfair test of him as a human being to replace the deeds of Adam. Okay, I would say yes personally, but that doesn't mean I'm right. I'd rather have you think that over for yourself. But whichever is correct, it doesn't matter. In the end, he did not sin. The Bible is absolutely certain about that. He is a perfect Savior, and the resurrection proves that. This term, incarnation, comes from two words. It comes from the word in, and it comes from the word carn, which means carnal or flesh. God united with humanity and he walked among us. Go over and look at the side of my truck, and I've got John 1, 14 on it. It says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, uh, I'm sorry, it says, um, uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the incarnate Word of God, all right? And yet, even though he's incarnate, he's a human, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is the divine Logos. He is the Word of God who took robes of flesh upon himself. Once again, if you don't understand the Trinity, go back to my Genesis 1-1 sermon and I define it and I explain it apart from the Bible so that you can see very clearly that it is something that we cannot do without and yet exist. There must be a Godhead in order for us to exist. If God is a monad, we wouldn't exist and I explain that in that particular sermon. Jesus Christ, though, did not possess humanity before his conception. And yet, the funny thing is that he appears in the Old Testament, as we've already seen so many times, just in the first 20-some chapters of Genesis. Jesus Christ directed history leading to himself by being a part of that history. That is the incredible thing about who he is. He is the master over time and space. Now, since his conception, he is clothed with humanity forever. And yet, he is not bound by the human nature. He remains fully God. His two natures are in no way separate. That leads to heresy. And yet they no way intermingle. That also leads to heresy. They are like this. They are united together without any separation or change of any kind. And I'll explain that a little bit more as we go on. Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, has all of the attributes of a man. He has a human genealogy. We see it in Matthew 1. We see it in Luke 3. He aged and he increased in wisdom and stature. As I said, Luke chapter uh, 2, he prayed, or I'm sorry, I think that's Luke 3. He prayed. He prayed to his father. He prayed just like any of us would. He got hungry. As a matter of fact, he ate bread. He got tired. He slept in the, the boat out on the Sea of Galilee. He felt compassion. He, he healed people when they were sick. And when a mother lost her only son, he walked up and he brought that son back to life because he was a compassionate person. He wept. As I said, he wept at the, uh, the uh, grave of Lazarus. He was thirsty. 
He was on the cross dying and he said, I thirst many times, more than a hundred. In fact, he was called the son of man or he was called the son of David, which demonstrates his human nature. But let's not miss the second part of Jesus. He has all the attributes of God. He is the creator, according to Colossians chapter one, according to John chapter one, he's the creator in Hebrews. He is the creator of all things and he is also the sustainer of all things. Colossians chapter one, Hebrews one, I think it's verse two. He has the power of the eternal God contained within him. And once again, go back to the Genesis one sermon and I explained that. He has eternality. He has no beginning according to Micah chapter five plus other references in both the Old and New Testament and he has no end. He has omniscience. That means he knows all things as he indicated at the ascension. He has omnipotence as he indicated at the Great Commission and he is immutable as it says in Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. He is completely unchanging in his being. He performs all of the works of God such as creation. He performs all of the works of God, such as raising people from the dead. And this is something that's very important to understand about creation, is that God cannot create a being, which would then be a contingent being, and that being turn around and create something else. That is impossible. A contingent being, which is one of the 12 first principles, cannot create anything. Only God can create. And yet Jesus Christ is clearly called the creator. That's called the principle of contingency. If you want to understand that more, once again, go back to the Genesis 1-1 sermon. All of the attributes of God are tied up in the divine logos, the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to give you my definition of the incarnation or the hypostatic union, the union of God and man, okay? And then after that, we'll go on with a couple other points. This is the definition of the Christmas story, though. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is fully God deity, united with full humanity, without intermingling or separation of these qualities. In him, there is no change or, of, or division of any kind, completely and forever. He is the finite united with the infinite. He is the point where God fellowships with man. And to help you understand that last part, in the Old Testament, we have what's called the tabernacle, where the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. And there, right in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, are two angels that are sitting up on top of that. And in between those two angels is where the presence of God dwelt. That's the point where the infinite met with the finite. Every single aspect of that Ark, everything about it points to the person of Jesus Christ every bit of it. It's a wonderful study that we'll get to in about 20 years when we get to the book of Leviticus. But I can assure you that everything about that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And also, guess what? In the book of Revelation, it says the same things, that he is the lamp, the radiance of God's glory coming out just as he was between the cherubim. And to help you understand that, John very clearly put in his gospel narrative, I believe it's in chapter 19, might be the 20th chapter, that Mary looked into the tomb and there were two angels sitting, one at one end and one at the other end of where he had laid. And that's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And there was his blood, just as the blood from the mercy seat was put there. He is the point where God fellowships with man. And without that mediator between us, there is no hope for us. And God is saying, I am personally doing this in the person of Jesus Christ. I am that mediator. 
But anyway, we'll move on. Our third thought today is for unto us. In Isaiah, we get this glimpse of the Lord, which is completely revealed in the New Testament. All right, so what I'm going to talk to you about from Isaiah is fully explained there in the New Testament. What Isaiah says reveals the many roles of the Christmas child. Let me read you these words again. I'll only read the sixth verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first thing that we have to note here, and this shows you right here, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God-man. It says, unto us a child is born. This is the human Jesus. Unto us means the people of the world. A child is by nature a son of humanity. Unto us a child is born. He is the seed of the woman. He is the son of Adam. He's the son of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He's the son of David. His direct genealogy as I said, is in Matthew chapter 1 and it's in Luke chapter 3. And Genesis shows us many, many, many other uh, ancestors of Jesus as well. Remember all these sermons that we went through? The uh, two daughters of Lot, remember them? We'll talk about that in just a second. They are all people. They're all filled with faults. And some of them are appalling to us. The two daughters of Lot went into a cave with their father and they had sex with him. And they both had children. One was named Moab and one was named Ben-Ami. And guess what? Both of those children are ancestors of Jesus, which means those two daughters that committed incest with their father were ancestors of Jesus, which means that Lot was an ancestor of Jesus, which means that his father, Haran, who died back in Ur of the Chaldees, was an ancestor of Jesus. All of these people and so many others that we've seen already lead directly to the person of Jesus Christ. They are all sinners just like you and me, and they are in need of a savior. But Isaiah also says that to us a son is given. This is the divine Jesus. He has no human father, and yet he exists. God gave his son. He entered into the world. Just as God is perfect, so is the son. Just as God is eternal, so is the son. God is love. Jesus loves he is the image of the invisible God, according to the book of Colossians. The son of man and the child of God, upon him will rest the government, upon his shoulders. In uh, the ninth Psalm, it says that he shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Isaiah then gives us several descriptions of this coming one for us to consider. His name will be called Wonderful. In Hebrew, the word is pele, and this word means literally that he will be incomprehensible. He'll be beyond understanding. He will be beyond description, and therefore the words that we use to describe this Lord will be insufficient for the task of describing him. Jesus is the one who establishes the order of all things, and he's the one that brings that order to completion as well. Within him, then, is the perfection of all order, and in him is all knowledge, which can be derived from all things. We use an alphabet for the basis of our language, by which things are described, we catalog them, we analyze them. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the explanation of all those things, why they exist, how they exist, and what their purpose is. And yet the words we use to describe him cannot fully 
do so. He is the one who exegetes or explains the Father according to the book of John. We have languages, and within those languages are letters, words, sentences, ideas, and concepts. And yet all of the information that can be developed for describing something can never attain to describe what is incomprehensible. Jesus is ultimately beyond our ability to fully describe or to even grasp. Everything that words form in order to give us meaning will never be able to describe the wonderment of the Messiah. The Christmas child is far more glorious than the Christmas story. Next, he's called counselor. The word is yoetz, and it signifies one of honorable rank. When princes or kings are near, they will hear his wisdom and they will understand his qualifications to guide them as the leader of all counsel, which directs the human race. He is also called, and don't miss this one, the mighty God. In Hebrew, the term is El Gabor. The only plain sense of this term is that this human being will be the omnipotent God. And to make sure that we understand that, Isaiah chapter 10 uses the exact same term, El Gabor, and says, I, the Lord, am the mighty God. There is no doubt what God is trying to tell us. He is not confused. He's not convoluted. He is telling us without a doubt that the one that is being prefigured here is the one that is talking about himself in the next chapter of Isaiah, El Gabor. That is the only plain sense of the passage. This is one of many, many times in the Bible that the term God is applied directly to Jesus. And therefore, even though this is an Old Testament reference, there's no doubt about what, he's com what he is claiming in that passage. Isaiah must have looked at these words that he wrote right here, and he must have wondered, even if for just a brief moment that maybe he had made a mistake or maybe God had made a mistake, or maybe he had just simply misunderstood the hand of God upon him as he was writing those words. But the words remain, and Isaiah is vindicated in this child of Christmas who lay helpless in a manger, and yet who created the entire universe by the magnificent power of his spoken word. Isaiah knew that his words must be correct because of the next term that he writes, everlasting father or abiad. The child here laying in swaddling clothes is the father of eternity. This is not speaking of him as the father of the Trinity. We don't want to make that mistake. Instead, the one who possesses a thing or the one who creates a thing is the father of it. The father of the light bulb, for example, is Thomas Edison because he invented the thing. The father of eternity, the everlasting father, Abiyad, is Jesus, who is master over time because he created time. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last, according to the book of Revelation. Finally, Isaiah calls this wonderful counselor the Prince of Peace. He calls him Sar Shalom. Shalom is a word that signifies much more than just calm or quiet. It is a state of completion or wholeness. In the Messiah, we find the completion of all things that have been anticipated since man fell in the Garden of Eden. In him will be the wholeness of reconciliation of all things as he brings both Jew and Gentile under one head, which is Messiah. He is the one from whom all blessings flow, and from him comes all prosperity and all goodness. He is complete in all ways, and his state of completeness 
will be transmitted to all people in the New Jerusalem. He brings the light of God to shine in radiant glory as the lamp of God in that New Jerusalem. He will be there for all eternity with us, revealing God the Father continuously, ceaselessly, endlessly, as we will see him progressing endlessly from, it's just, I, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like because the source of all blessings and the source of all prosperity and the source of all goodness lies in him. And so when we're looking at him, we are continuously being filled with that goodness. There'll be no desire left, left unfulfilled. He is the creator. He is the source. He is the one that gives us those blessings. This one that Isaiah tells us is coming is the one whom we fail to adequately describe with the mere words of mortal man. And this is the one who came in the humblest form of all. And that brings us to our fourth and final point today, which is a babe in a manger. When we think of the Christmas story, no matter what time of the year it actually occurred, we think of the beautiful words that come from Luke and from Matthew. I'm going to read those to you, starting with Luke, even though it comes second in the, uh, or third in the uh, gospel narratives. I want to read you the account from Luke first. And I'm not going to give you a lot of commentaries. I just want you to hear the Christmas story as it's revealed to us. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So we know exactly when he came because we know when those things occurred. Uh, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Bethlehem means bread, house of bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And here we have the bread of life being born in the house of bread. It's kind of one of those interesting little things. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Remember I quoted you uh, 2 Samuel 7, where the promises of David, and they lead down to the coming Messiah to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her first son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. A manger, it's a feeding trough for animals. The king of the universe lay in a feeding trough for animals. The humblest form of all. It's, it, it is beyond comprehension what God did and how he did it for us. It, it, it's amazing because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Well, guess what? Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And he decided to go to this group of people. My mother's been to Israel. I've been there. Kelly here has been to Israel. If any of you others have been to Israel, you know that the shepherds are the lowliest group of people to be found in the land. Nobody wants to talk to them. They're out in the field, out in the middle of nowhere with their sheep, and, and uh, they're just they're considered almost nothing. And it was the same back then. And yet he came first to these shepherds who were tending the flock, the little sheep that need to be tended to. And here we are, people of the world, straying off all over the place. And he went to them just as he comes to each one of us to tell us what he is going to do in human history. It says. Um, verse 9, And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now imagine this. He could have come during the day, but it wouldn't have been as spectacular. He came at night so that they could see this. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. 
For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. He says it again, a feeding trough, the king of the universe, the Messiah, the king of Israel in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and, and saying, I got to tell you what, can't imagine what the angels thought. Their creator, like in a manger. I can't even imagine what they thought. I read these words and it humbles me every time. There they are. Glory to God in the highest. On the earth, peace and goodwill toward men. There is no peace and goodwill towards angels. When they fall, they are forever banished from the presence of God. But God did this for us, for each one of us. So it was... When the angels had gone away, and I assure you, they're still in heaven today rejoicing over what happened 2,000 years ago. They'd gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Three times it says it. Lying in a manger, the king of the universe in a food trough. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And those, I'm sorry, and all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Imagine what she thought of this baby being born in a manger and hanging on a cross in front of her. She pondered and kept these things in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. And it was told them. And then we go to Matthew chapter 2 to finish out the Christmas story. When they heard the king, they departed. These are the magi who had come from the east. They departed and behold the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It says they, re they rejoiced with rejoicing. With exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house they saw the young child with his mother and fell down and worshipped him. I want you to know that the word there, worship, some people will abuse that and they'll change it to the word, gave him obeisance. And throughout the gospel narratives and throughout the New Testament, they'll say that it, it was obeisance. The word is proskuneo, and it means one thing and one thing only. They worshipped him. They worshipped him when he was resurrected. They worshipped him in the book of Revelation. They are, we worship Jesus because he is our creator. We don't give obeisance to Jesus. When he comes before us, we have one of two choices. We can call him Lord or we can be cast out of his presence. And he is our Lord. When they came, when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, gifts to him. They presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold was to symbolize that he was their king. The frankincense was to symbolize that he was their uh, high priest. And the myrrh was given because they knew that this one was to die. They had gone to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they knew from the book of Isaiah that this one would die. And so the myrrh was there for his burial. The gifts of a king. All the glorious majesty and the whole scope of the wonderful plan laid out in the Bible is realized in this helpless baby laying in a manger. All of the wisdom and all of the power of the eternal God is tied up in this child laying there in a body of flesh which came from the dust that he created. It is simply beyond comprehension. 
and what is more so is the life that he would live. Before the glory came the humility, before the majesty came the abasement, and before the joy of the resurrection came the suffering and the death. Earlier I said that Jesus is full deity. There's no doubt about it. There's no way to get around it without corrupting the Bible. And yet he is also full humanity. And as I explained, when we ask a question about Jesus, we invariably have to get two answers. Question, could Jesus suffer? Answer, yes, as a man, he did. He suffered. The baby in the manger didn't come to just coo us with little giggles and smiles. He came to fulfill a mission. He came to reverse the curse that was placed on humanity, which he pronounced on humanity 4,000 years earlier and to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, John, in his first epistle, says that that is the main reason for the coming of Christ was to destroy the works of the devil. After the disobedience of man, the Lord God cursed the woman and the man with these tragic words. And I want to read them to you and I want you to think them through. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The astonishing thing about this pronouncement is that it didn't just come upon his creatures as if he's some type of mean or vindictive creator. Instead, the marvel of this curse is that he bore it upon himself. So when we see shooting of children in a school up in Connecticut, we cannot say that God doesn't care. The baby in the manger became the brunt of the curse that he pronounced. Let me read it to you again. The sentence, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering and the one whose soul was in labor. For our sakes, his own sorrows and pains were multiplied. The sentence continues, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Jesus suffered at the cross to bring many sons to glory. In pain, he brought forth God's children. The sentence continues, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The desire of the bride of Christ is for her husband. And Jesus is the one who will rule over his bride, the church whom he purchased with his own blood. The sentence continues, cursed is the ground for your sake. In, Je in the book of Isaiah, Jesus is said to be a root out of dry ground, cursed ground. And later in Galatians, it says that he became a curse for us, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The curse continues, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In Isaiah, it says that he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus labored throughout his life in the harvest of men. The sentence continues, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Christ was given what? A crown of thorns. The very sentence of the man for his disobedience became the crown of the Lord 
who sentenced him. The curse continues. And you shall eat the herb of the field. The instruction for the Passover in the book of Exodus says this. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Jesus not only participated in the Passover each year, he authored it and he fulfilled it, leading a life in bitterness and hanging on a cross to redeem fallen man. As Paul says, I think it's in the book of 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, thus fulfilling that feast as he fulfilled all of the feasts of the Lord of Leviticus 23. But the sentence continues, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. In the Garden of Eden, Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling on the ground, thus earning his bread, the bread of affliction to redeem fallen man. The curse continues, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. The mortal part of Jesus Christ was taken out of the ground. He was born of man. He was a human being, and so Man was formed from the dust, and that part of him came from the dust. And the mortal part of Jesus Christ, the man, died on Calvary's cross, and he was interned for the sins committed by his own creatures. Death came as a result of sin, and sin was dealt with in his obedient death. The very sentence that we were given for our rebellion was carried out in that precious baby that lay in a humble manger in Bethlehem. The Lord has not caused us to receive anything that he wasn't willing to endure himself. Thus he is both just and he is the justifier of all who call on him. There is one exception to this curse though between Adam and Jesus. Let me read it to you. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Jesus because of his perfect life prevailed over the devil and he was resurrected by the power of God. The curse has been removed from anyone who will now call on him and they will likewise be freed from the finality of death. Here we are. It's 23 December today. It's Christmas. It's coming up in just two more days and we are celebrating the one that would come that would divide human history itself the ages are noted as B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, because of the birth of the Messiah. The babe in the manger grew into a man, and he gave up his life for the people who he created and who so shamefully rejected him. How can we not give him glory? How can we not give him honor? How can we not give him praise for the great things that he has done? And I want to take just two more minutes of your time and I want to explain to you in as simple terms as possible why Christ came in case you have never accepted this gift and in case you do not have the peace in your heart that he has promised to grant us, the King of Peace, the Sar Shalom. Let me tell you that Jesus Christ came as a human being. He came as fully God. And as I said, he is the one that brings us the finite and the infinite together. Because without that, there is no way to be reconciled to God. Go back to my Genesis 1-1 sermon and you'll figure that out. The wages of, the, of, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And that's why we die. And it also is a spiritual death. We are completely and utterly separated from God because of the sin. Not our sin, but because of the sin of Adam. And we cannot go back before Adam and take care of our sin debt. It is inherited. The entire premise of the Bible is that 
Cain slew Abel, even though there's no other record of them having sinned. And they went and offered offerings, even though there's no record in the Bible of them having committed any other sin. The entire premise is that they inherited the fallen nature of Adam. And that goes all the way through the Bible. And because Adam sinned, and because we are in Adam, we are eternally separated from God. As I said, we are in time, and time is going this way, and we can't go back before that sin. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's something we can't earn. God just simply says here, if you will have faith in what I have done in the person of my own son, Jesus Christ, I will take your sins and I will put them on him. And then I will take his righteousness and I will give it to you. It's the doctrine of substitution and it's found all through the Old Testament. God giving us pictures of what is coming in this person. And so what he asks us to do is one thing. It's very simple. It's very, very simple. He says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That means that Jesus Christ is Lord and you have no other. That is what God expects of you. And if you are willing to do that one thing, God will reconcile you to himself for all eternity. It's something you can never lose. All right. I'm going to give you a closing verse today. Actually, it's a couple verses. It's from Philippians 2. This is known as the Kenotic Hymn. Kenosis is the emptying. And I want you to listen to these words very carefully to help you understand what we've already talked about today. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's asking us to have the mind of Christ now, who being in the form of God, he is God. There's no doubt. That's what he's saying right there. He is, he is God himself did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And what's he talking about there? Adam wanted to be equal to God. The devil said, if you eat this, you'll be like God. And you'll know right from wrong and all these other things. And that's what Adam did. Don't be like Adam. Don't try to be like God. Be like Christ. He says, but made himself of no reputation. This is God making himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of of men to redeem fallen man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Well, guess what? In the original Greek, there is no definite article before the word cross to show us how utterly shameful what Jesus Christ endured for us. He simply says, death cross or cross death, if you look at it how shameful it was. And why is it shameful? Because we have people that go to war and they die in war and they have these glorious deaths. And we have people that live long lives and they get old and they, they die. And we have all these other ways of dying in the world. Instead, he was hung on a cross in the most shameful way that the Roman Empire could conceive. And you see these pictures of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross with a little thing over him here? That wasn't there. They hung them up bare naked. And he did that in front of his mother, in front of his apostles and his disciples, in front of his friends. He hung there naked for you and me, across death. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to think through when he says it this way. Therefore, therefore, what is therefore? Go back and see what it's there for. Exactly what we just said. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And he goes here and he quotes Isaiah to make absolutely sure that we don't ever make this mistake, this fundamental error of theology. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's taking exactly what was ascribed to Jehovah in the Old Testament, 
and he's ascribing it to Jesus here. The name above every name. The name of Jesus supersedes the name of Jehovah because he is Jehovah incarnate to the glory of God the Father. Well, if you have God the Father, then you have God the Son. And if you have God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit. And the issuing of time shows us how the Godhead works. Go back to Genesis 1-1 sermon and you'll understand this. And without that, we would not exist. But we do exist. And God loves us enough to step out of the time that he created and to participate in it to redeem us back. I want to tell you about the probability of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the prophecies that we've talked about today. Just eight, okay? If you had eight prophecies fulfilled of somebody that's coming from the Old Testament and it pointed to the person of Jesus, you would need to have enough silver dollars two feet deep to cover the entire state of Texas where Steve is from. He's visiting, he got here yesterday. 270,000 square miles of silver dollars this deep. And you'd have to take an airplane and fly over it and jump out and on your first grab, pull out that one silver dollar. And that is the probability of Jesus fulfilling only eight prophecies in the Old Testament. Liberal theologians ascribe to Jesus, and they can't deny these. They ascribe at least 60 to him. These are people that just want to deny that Jesus is who he says he is. 60, okay? The 19th century theologian, Albert Adersheim, came up with a list of 456 prophecies that point to this coming one. And I assure you, in the first 25 chapters of Genesis, we've seen half that many already. 456 prophecies. The power of magnitude at that number of prophecies is enough to fill every inch of this universe with silver dollars. Every inch of it. And you would have silver dollars left over for all of eternity to buy Christmas presents. Jesus Christ really is the fulfillment of these prophecies, and he really is the Lord God incarnate, and he really is reaching out to each person here and asking us to be reconciled to God the Father through his shed blood. All right, before we go, next week I want to uh, introduce to you uh, the man of faith, Genesis 25, 1 through 11. It's the death of Abraham, this great man who prefigured the Lord in so many ways, and that's what we're going to talk about. And... Um, uh, after that, then we're going to get into, uh, I believe, the uh, birth of uh, Esau and Jacob. I think that'll be two weeks from now. Boy, is that a fantastic study. It deals with the doctrines of election and predestination. And if you're a little confused about those issues, uh, don't worry. I'll get you more confused by the time we're done with that sermon. But as I do every week, I uh, write a poem based on whatever we discuss and uh, what I did rather than doing the entire passage, because we didn't do an entire passage, I took three, I believe, of the passages that we've looked at, and I did a poem based on those. So here we go. This is called The Child of Glory. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, and thus he said, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above your head. Ask it from the heavens under which you trod. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. I will not be presumptuous and speak another word. Then he said, Here now, O house of David, I want to know. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Is this how to live in iniquity's hidden den? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive, and she shall bear a son by my glorious design, and his name shall be Emmanuel. Hear now and believe. And you, Bethlehem Ephratah, I know that you agree. You are little among the thousands of Judah, it is so. 
Yet out of you shall come forth even unto me, the one to be ruler in Israel. My word is true, you know. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, thus you have been told. Praise God, O Israel, for unto us a child is born. Praise the Lord, land of Judah, for unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders worn, and through him shall man's sins be forgiven. And his name will be called Wonderful. The Counselor and Mighty God is he. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, pure and white as wool. Of the increase of his government and peace, no end shall we see. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom's realm, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, he at the helm, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and we shout, Hallelujah! And to him the obedience of the people shall be sweet. This helpless baby lying in a manger will rule the world in everlasting peace. Through him will come security with no danger, and the rule of his glory shall never, never cease. All praise to our stupendous Lord of glory. Yes, all praise and honor to this precious King. Praising God for the wondrous Christmas story. Let the Lord's redeemed shout aloud and sing. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for what you did for us that we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for how you've presented it in a way that we can understand and we can look at this person and we can see your very heart reflected in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, thank you. There's nothing more we can do than just praise you all the days of our life for the glorious majesty of what you've done in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is in his precious and exalted name we pray. Hallelujah and amen.